somewhere between 40 and 60 percent of gambling losses are actually coming from people with a gambling problem. And so that's something we have to consider when we look at uh, gambling as a legalized industry. Do we really need poker machines where you can lose $1,200 an hour, you know, if you play at maximum speed and uh, lines and credits? People are looking very, very hard for some kind of measure that will supposedly reduce the amount of harm in the community, but somehow keeping all of that uh, money <laughs> that is flowing through uh, corporations and ultimately to governments. Welcome to Impact, a Sikh University podcast where our experts unpack their latest research in easy to understand language. We discover how these researchers are creating solutions to some of the world's most complex challenges. Subscribe now to Sikh University podcast so you don't miss an episode and join the conversation on Sikh University's social media. Australians are the world's most prolific gamblers. That's a fact. Between us, we gamble away around $25 billion a year. So that's nearly $1,300 for every adult. But at what point does a fact become a problem? And is so-called problem gambling the only way that gambling harms our community? CQ University's Experimental Gambling Research Laboratory is on a mission to better understand gambling, how we do it, why we do it, and how it impacts all of us. Hi, I'm Dr. Alex Russell, and I'm a senior postdoc with CQU's Experimental Gambling Research Lab. Today on Impact, I'm joined by the bigwigs in the gambling lab to really deep dive some of our research topics to help us understand gambling harm and how we can minimize it. With me is the head of the Experimental Gambling Research Lab, Professor Matthew Rockloff. Hi, Matt. Hi there. Uh, also, the research professor for gambling studies, Professor Nerily Hing. Hey, Nerily. Hey, Alex. Uh, and why have only two professors when you can have three? The lab stats man is Professor Matthew Brown. Hey, Matt. Hi, Alex. Good to be here. So with two Matts, we tend to call them by their last names. We've got Rockloff and Brown. Uh, right. So into the questions. The lab has been looking at how Australians gamble since 2011. Rockloff, let's start with the big question. Does Australia have a gambling problem or is it a bit more complicated than that? Yeah, it's a good question because I think people come from uh, at gambling as sort of a moral issue. Does Australia have a gambling problem? Well, Australia doesn't have a gambling problem, but Australians and some Australians have a gambling problem. There is uh, a very high rate of gambling um, participation in Australia and spend in Australia relative um, to some other jurisdictions where gambling is legal. Um, but we tend to have about the same rate of problem gambling as other jurisdictions with um, similar gambling opportunities. So it's not that we necessarily have more, quote unquote, problem gamblers. Um, we may or may not have more gambling harm, that is more people participate in gambling. And so some people may be harmed in other ways other than having this mental health condition that we call problem gambling. Um, but, but certainly people who participate regularly in gambling activities tend to spend more than they can afford, um, and they may actually spend more time uh, than they can reasonably afford, and it takes away from um, other activities, things like work and, and study, and that creates harm in and of itself. So definitely there are uh, harmed gamblers in Australia. Um, and the most severe rates of harm are about equivalent to what we see in other countries like the United States that have similar gambling opportunities. Can I just jump in there, Alex? Um, look, Australians are the world's biggest gamblers, so we've got the highest per capita 
gambling losses of any country in the world. And we spend nearly double per person than the next highest country, which is Singapore. Um, as as Rockoff rightly said, though, that doesn't necessarily translate into a higher proportion of people or the population with a with a severe gambling problem. Um, I would point out, though, some national stats that indicate nationally representative stats that indicate that approximately forty percent of people who gamble monthly on pokies or sports betting or race betting have at least one and often more symptoms of a gambling problem. So that is a big chunk of people who are negatively affected by gambling. Um, those with a severe problem make up about 6% of at least monthly gamblers on those sort of continuous forms of gambling. So uh, my view is Australia does have a problem with gambling. <laughs> uh, whether it's worse than other countries is up for debate. So I have an extra reflection on the issue of whether Australia has a gambling problem, and that's the amount of money that actually, particularly with poker machines, um, is uh, due to people with gambling problems. And a sort of number that's not really disputed by industry is around somewhere between 40 and 60% of gambling losses are actually coming uh, from people with a gambling problem. And so that's something we have to consider when we look at uh, gambling as a legalized industry is that a large proportion of the revenue that's going to the gambling industry is actually coming from people with gambling problems. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Rockloff. And I think the industry has a problem with gambling. And um, Alex, as you would know, in our recent study on responsible conduct of gambling in New South Wales pokies venues, uh, that the amongst the 2,300 staff who we surveyed, you know, most of them agreed regularly seeing patrons in the venue with gambling problems and, and some uh, focus group participants estimated that as 60 to 70 percent of their patrons gambling at harmful levels. So uh, there's no doubt the industry has reliance on a small group of people um, with, with quite severe gambling problems, it would appear. Yeah, I think I'd also sort of point out as well, Australia's weird in that we have um, pokies in our pubs, um, whereas that's, you know, for, for if you've grown up in Australia, that's just normal. But overseas, you walk into a pub and they're just not there. So we also have this strange relationship with it too. Uh, so we've got an idea of, you know, this problem gambler that we've been talking about here, the the idea of someone who's, you know, stressed out playing the pokies, but we're kind of moving away from that idea of a problem gambler these days to talk about gambling harm. So why are we talking about gambling harm instead of problem gambling? And what's the difference? Brown, you've been doing a lot of work here. Yeah, sure thing, Alex. So the idea of a problem gambler is usually um, we think of it as someone who uh, has some kind of pathology. Um, some kind of mental disorder um, and has developed a behavioral dependence on gambling. So you might say it's um, analogous to um, the way people might conceive of someone who is an alcoholic or has alcohol use disorder. Now, the idea of gambling related harm is a much more general one where it can uh, be occurring to a broader spectrum of people, uh, people who are not necessarily satisfying those clinical criteria for addiction. So you can see this very easily um, by the analogy with alcohol. So the idea of uh, reducing gambling-related harm is a really important one because it focuses not just people who have some kind of disorder, but much more broadly on the whole population. I mean, one of the things with harm there, though, is that 
everyone, when you think of gambling, tends to focus on the financial side of things, right? So the it's the money um, is the problem. But harms can spread a lot more than that, can't they? Yeah. So the mechanism by which gambling hurts people uh, is often uh, occurring through those excessive financial losses. Uh, it can also um, have occurred due to the um, time that gets invested and is diverted away from other things. But I think most people agree the mechanism is generally those financial losses. But in terms of the harms that are occur- occurring, there's um, a-, a lot more stuff going on. So the impact on people's relationships, the loss of trust and um, the psychological and emotional distress experienced by people with gambling problems or sense of shame and sense of worthlessness they might be feeling. Yeah, I think one thing that is important to mention here is that the real source of harm for gambling is time and money spent on gambling. All these sort of ancillary harms that we talk about, which is emotional distress and um, problems with work and, and with other family members, really emanate from the fact that people are spending too much money on gambling and too much time on gambling. And so that's what makes it different from other uh, addictive sort of activities like um, internet addiction or video game addiction. Those, those activities often have their harm directly emanating from too much time spent on the activity, whereas gambling has both. It has really too much time and too much money, um, and those are producing outsized harms compared to other addictive activities. Yeah, I think one of the issues um, involved in promoting good public policy on gambling is due to that fact that the mechanism is really rooted in those financial losses. So the problem here is that those financial losses translate into company profits and those company profits translate into government revenue. And this leads to a situation where people are looking very, very hard for some kind of measure that will supposedly reduce the amount of harm in the community, but somehow keeping all of that uh, money <laughs> that is flowing through uh, corporations um, and ultimately to, to governments. So unfortunately, there's a real lack of political will to look at um, measures that would really work to reduce harm, precisely because they would stem that flow of money from people who cannot afford to lose it. If I can just add a quick point there, uh, which is gambling and domestic violence. And so um, having done some work on that, it's very clear that, okay, um, the harms from gambling are essentially financial and, you know, impact on relationships and other things. I would also argue that um, gambling can be a multiplier of other types of harm. Um, And that was very clear in the domestic violence study that that we did linked to gambling, that uh, when you combine those two issues, um, that, that the harm was greatly multiplied for the people involved. All right. So it sounds like there's a lot of harm that stems from gambling here. It sounds like it's just this terrible thing. But if there's so much harm, then why not just get rid of it? I mean, you know, there must be some benefits here. We talked there a little bit about the money coming into governments. Are there any other benefits from gambling? Rockoff, you've done some work here. What do you think? Yeah. So one thing with gambling is to be able to look at it uh, from a standpoint of something other than ideology. So people have ideologies around gambling, and I think it really revolves around people have 
preconceptions about whether gambling is a good or bad thing. And often people's preconceptions are really based on moral um, ideas about getting something for nothing. And that's really um, opposed to a sort of Protestant work ethic where you, know, you, you uh, achieve in life what you put in, in terms of hard work. And gambling seems to go against that and therefore um, is something that shouldn't be supported. Now, if you put aside that concern, just um, at least for the moment, and consider it um, in another context, and maybe the context that's um, promoted by the gambling industry is gambling is entertainment. And people do it for a reason, and the reason primarily um, is recreational enjoyment. Uh, that is, a lot of people go into gambling with the notion that not as a, as a way to make money or replace their income, but as a way to spend some time in an enjoyable activity. Uh, they may win, they may lose. And so the question becomes um, what has been termed in gambling research, the gambling question, uh, because it's so central to all of what we do, which is, is gambling a good or a bad thing? Um, and, you know, roughly stated. And so uh, th that turns out to be a really complicated question from a research standpoint. Um, and people just devolve back to moral arguments. Um, either it's good for the economy and, and people are employed by uh, the gambling industry and therefore um, it's a good thing um, and people are having recreational enjoyment and therefore it's a good thing or people are being idle, um, people are experiencing harm from gambling and therefore it's a bad thing. I've really looked at trying to quantify that to try and understand it. And I come from a, a background in economics and central to economic theory is something called utility theory, which is basically that when we consume things, we have this abstract enjoyment from it um, that we call utility and that you can actually measure how much utility you have uh, from consuming things. And so I've done that um, in uh, a Tasmanian prevalence study that we did back in um, 2017, where we looked at and measured people's enjoyment from gambling. And at the same time, we measured people, uh, people's harm that they had from gambling, the sort of, um, uh, the sort of subtraction from their well-being that they had uh, from taking part in gambling. And what we did is we added that up. Uh, there were 5,000 adults that we surveyed by telephone um, and in a representative sample. So it was a random sampling um, methodology and tried to look at on average, are Tasmanians harmed by gambling or are they helped by gambling because their, their recreational um, activity actually makes them enjoy more. And basically what we found is probably in the, in the first instance, not so surprising, which is most gamblers said that their quality of life didn't change at all because of their gambling. It didn't go up or didn't go down. However, amongst the people where it did change their quality of life, what we found is when we added all things up, we, we added some people who had severe harms from gambling, that is that made their lives a lot, lot worse. That is people with gambling problems and maybe some people with lesser problems from gambling. And then also recreational gamblers who just said, hey, actually it made my life better. It made my life more enjoyable. And then, and there are a lot more of those people who are just recreationally enjoying it to a very small degree. And so what we found is this sort of small amount of people who are experiencing a lot of harm and a larger number 
of people who are experiencing very modest benefits from their gambling. And we did what we do in utility theory is sort of average all of those together across the entire population to see if on average, uh, people's uh, enjoyment of life was increased or decreased by the presence of gambling within the Tasmanian community. And what we found is basically that, well, I had sort of two different ways of calculating it. And the first way of calculating it, we found a very, very modest benefit, really close to zero. And then the, my other way of calculating it, I actually found that uh, people's quality of life decreased about 2% on average as a result of gambling. That's 2% for every single Tasmanian. So that's actually quite a bit of loss of, um, of uh, people's enjoyment of their lives as a result of gambling. So basically what I found is overall gambling doesn't look like a very good activity in terms of delivering on what it's promising, which is uh, a recreational activity that's improving people's well-being. So gambling harm doesn't just affect the gambler themselves though. We've talked about you know effects on relationships and things. So uh, gambling can have impacts on those around the people who are experiencing gambling harm. So narrowly amongst the ridiculous number of studies that you lead, you just completed a major study on uh, gambling and intimate partner violence. So what did you find? Well, um, most often harmed, of course, most frequently harmed by someone else's gambling are the, is the partner, and that flows on to the children as well. So a very serious harm, of course, is domestic violence or, and intimate partner violence associated with gambling. So we already know that domestic violence is a huge problem in Australia. I mean, police deal with around 650 domestic violence incidents every day in Australia. That's one every two minutes. It's just what's reported to police. And we know that one woman is killed by her partner or ex-partner every nine days. We also know that having a gambling problem triples the likelihood of a person perpetrating or being a victim of domestic violence. So we've got the convergence of these two big and serious issues, I guess. Um, and our, our recent research, uh, which was funded by ANROS, the Australia's National Research Organisation for Women's Safety, looked at the interaction between gambling and intimate partner violence. And what was unique about this study um, was it was the first or is the first to examine male partner violence in this instance linked to gambling and doing that from a gendered perspective. And this is really important because research clearly shows that male partner violence against women is consistently predicted by expressions of gender hierarchy or gender inequality within relationships. So things like where relationships are, are, are dominated by the, the man who has a sense of entitlement over women, maintains control over uh, decision-making, limits her freedoms and independence, and has this sort of perceived right to abuse his female partner if she somehow transgresses his wishes. So they're what's known as gender drivers and they're very well-known risk factors for intimate partner violence in general. In fact, they're so well accepted that they underpin national and international strategic plans to reduce, reduce violence against women. You know, I'm talking about plans uh, implemented by the World Health Organization, the European Commission, UK, Australia, New Zealand governments and more. So this is not just an ideological stance if I can put it like that. Uh, this is very much um, based in, in evidence. So coming back to our study, uh, what we recognised then was that understanding the role that gambling might play in intimate partner violence also really needed to understand how gambling interacts with gendered 
drivers of violence within those relationships as well. Um, and so that's what we did. It was a qualitative study, over 100 interviews with women who um, had been subjected to this violence linked to either their own or their partner's gambling, and also um, several dozen service practitioners who had assisted women in those circumstances. And the women and practitioners reported horrendous and ongoing patterns of violence linked to gambling, um, you know, physical assault, stalking, strangulation, rape, psychological manipulation, threats to life, etc. What was really telling, or one of the things I think that was really telling from those interviews was, without exception, women in the study described their male partner with words such as manipulative, misogynistic, selfish, entitled, controlling, domineering. And they described his behaviour as, as coercive and controlling, you know, doing what he pleased while, while placing limits on the woman, for example. So there was no doubt that the gender drivers were very apparent. But it was in that context then that gambling made things so much worse. And in this study where the male partner was the one with the gambling problem, women reported that the frequency and severity of his violence intensified over time as his gambling problem worsened. So, you know, they described their male partner as becoming angrier and angrier. I remember one woman describing it, him as, you know, descending into madness, for example. Um, we know about the symptoms of severe problem gambling, you know, preoccupation, cravings and urges and things like this. So again, the women described how their partner became completely preoccupied with gambling, uh, which lowered any, you know, or, or lowered his concern for the, her welfare and the welfare of the family. And that those cravings and urges, if he was unable to gamble, resulted in anger and frustration. And when, of course, he inevitably lost at gambling, because everyone inevitably loses when they keep going, um, that that anger was typically directed and blame at, at the woman in violent acts. So there was this sort of trajectory, I guess, of increasing gambling and increasing violence over time. But within that, there were these short-term cycles of violence directly linked to tension building, if unable to gamble, violent outbursts linked to gambling losses. So, you know, some women described that the violence peaked on a Saturday, on a Sunday or Monday after a weekend of his gambling. And, and then, you know, the other area I think um, was that if the woman questioned his gambling or refused to give him money for gambling, then violent backlash nearly always occurred. So women learned to maintain silence to try and protect themselves and, and their children. And I guess you add all those things with the known um, financial and relationship and emotional stresses that we know accompany a gambling problem. Um, it, that just sort of adds to the whole tinderbox conditions, I guess, um, the other area I, I think came through really strongly here was financial abuse. Um, so where the male partner had a gambling problem, all, all women partners of, of those guys reported also being financially abused. And that's hardly surprising, given that it takes a hell of a lot of money to maintain a, a severe gambling habit. So, you know, women reported, obviously, you know, partner stole from them, stole from their bank accounts, remortgaged the house without permission. I remember one woman telling us that she discovered her partner had remortgaged $140,000 on their on their home loan without knowledge, um, you know, forging signatures um, to acquire bank loans in her name and things like this. And more insidious than that were the threats of violence and the actual violence used to 
coerce the women into providing money or some of the women into providing money and signing up for loans and, and things like that. So the result of that for those women was obviously impoverishment, debt, but they're also terrified, but they were too poor to leave the relationship and feel that they could possibly support themselves and their children. So that kept them trapped in violent relationships and extended their experiences of violence as well. Enjoying this episode? Subscribe to Seek University's podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, rate, review, and share. Um, just to talk briefly um, on the other side of the coin, when the woman had the gambling problem, so some women in the study had been subjected to violence linked to their own gambling, and um, these women had most often started going to gambling venues to physically escape from their partner's violence. So they saw gambling venues as somewhere relatively safe. You know, they've got security cameras and security personnel and there are other people around. Um, but then, of course, playing the pokies, because every woman who in this study who had a problem with gambling had a problem with pokies. Um, the pokies allowed them an emotional escape from their trauma and, and, and worries, et cetera. Um, what, what then eventuated in most situations was this sort of relentless cycle for these women of gambling and abuse. So they would go gambling to escape the abuse. They would come home, be abused more because of their gambling. Then they would go gambling again, compounding their gambling problem. So they were in this, you know, what, what we described as um, this sort of relentless cycle. So, you know, I, I guess our conclusion to the study then um, was that, you know, gambling might not directly cause intimate partner violence on its own, but where those sort of gender drivers, where that context is already present, gambling problems greatly intensify the frequency and, and severity of violence against women. So problem gambling is a big issue, domestic violence is a big issue, and the combination really compounds and exacerbates violence against those women. So some really devastating findings in there. And it's such a, a complex topic, though. There's far more than what you've had time to talk about here. So for anyone who's interested, the report is available on the ANROS website um, and is worth a read because we can only cover so much detail in a really complex topic here. Um, one of the things that you, you touched on there as well was um, women going to venues to escape their partners. Mm -hmm. We've had um, a bit of a thing happen this year with the COVID lockdowns, which meant that all of the venues were closed. Incredibly, if you'd have told me this time last year that every pokey in Australia would be turned off, I don't think anyone would have believed you. Um, so obviously there, there's far more potential there for things like domestic violence um, with people being stuck at home. I'm curious though about the, the bigger effects of COVID here. I'd love to hear thoughts from anyone on this one in terms of, you know, there's a recession that's going on. There's uh, economic uncertainty here. Uh, what are the impacts of that? Plus just a general stressful living environment right now on people um, in terms of their gambling for those who are vulnerable. Look, you know, there hasn't been a lot of research done in Australia on this, but when we look to some overseas studies, we can, you know, what they generally found is that um, gambling has increased during COVID-19 or particularly during lockdowns amongst people with gambling problems, um, but not necessarily so for people without problems. Um, so that's the sort of general trend across a couple of studies that I'm aware of overseas. It's not something I've looked into hugely in depth, I have to say. But, but you know, I think um, 
the lockdown has elevated a whole lot of risk factors that are associated with problem gambling or gambling problems, you know, mental health issues, social isolation, um, you know, relationship <laughs> issues, financial stress, of course. And so, you know, I, I think it would be hardly surprising that a proportion of the population um, would have um, increased their gambling and increase the harm, experience increased harm from their gambling during COVID lockdowns. So there's so much to understand about the impacts of gambling in the community, but then the next question is, how do we fix it? What are we in the EGRL doing to look at fixes for gambling harm? Well, as a researcher, I have to admit, I'm not doing a great deal myself. <laughs> but what I can say is that we, I think now have pretty good knowledge of the kinds of measures that would um, really be able to decrease gambling related harm significantly. So these all tend to revolve around interfering with that mechanism. Yes, it's very important to uh, treat people who um, have clinical problems, um, but if we want to prevent the harm, what we want to do is interrupt that, uh, that mechanism of excessive losses. So there's been um, a number of policy proposals uh, put forward. Um, one of them is um, implementing some sort of restrictions on the most problematic forms of gambling, and that is uh, pokey machines in Australia is, is the real big one. So, so doing things like $1 bets or some kind of limit on the amount that can be bet now, the problem with that kind of thing is that they are broad brushstroke. So what's really interesting is the introduction of some kind of uh, cashless gambling systems or card-based gambling systems, because what these involve is that through some kind of loyalty card um, that the individual uh, spend of uh, players can be tracked. And therefore we can have good knowledge of people who are showing all the signs of, of gambling excessively. They do things like um, come back repeatedly, withdrawing more money, gam um, gambling increasingly uh, more and more. So with that kind of uh, knowledge, then interventions can be uh, uh, targeted at, at the people who need some kind of help. Um, if I can just jump in and add to what you've said, Brown, um, there's no doubt that cashless gaming, you know, provides all sorts of potential benefits, um, such as what you've um, suggested already. It would allow people to set limits on their own gambling. It would uh, be able to cut people off, you know, so that they do adhere to the limits that they've set themselves. It would allow um, venues um, to, uh, or it would allow venue self-exclusion to be pretty much foolproof, you know, so there are a number of benefits. Um, I, I was quite heartened um, to see the New South Wales Gambling Harm Minimisation Bill in draft very recently, and um, it does propose um, or linked to that is is a proposal for cashless cashless gambling. So you know that is a huge reform, given that um, as you rightly said, governments have been so wedded to gambling taxes in the past and and have been very very reticent to um, do anything that's going to hurt the, the goose that, that lays the golden egg. And I'm happy to say that our research actually has um, very much informed that um, harm minimisation bill. So our work is the most cited in the explanatory paper for that bill, including your prevalence study, Matt, in New South Wales, and Alex and, and my study on responsible conduct of gambling. So we do make a difference as researchers um, by influencing policy and providing evidence. 
Yeah, so there are a couple of things that are original ideas that have come out of the lab in terms of addressing gambling harm. One of them is jackpot expiry. So some people really gamble in order to recoup their losses and particularly people with gambling problems with the hope that they'll win a jackpot and um, be able to recover all their long losses that they've had over a period of time. And that's sort of what weds them to continue gambling is that hope. And one of the ideas with the cashless system is to have what I call jackpot expiry, which is where uh, people bet over a period of time and their bets are registered. But if they bet um, a, a large number of times uh, within a fixed period of time, whether it's a week or a month, um, then the ability to have a jackpot actually expires after that period of time. So if they make a fixed number of bets or a fixed quantity of bets, um, then the jackpot is no longer available. And I, I've had some behavioral evidence that actually shows that actually people will quit early when a jackpot is taken away from them, particularly when they're in a losing situation. And so that's sort of one um, protection device that could be implemented if you had a cashless betting situation. I think they're great points, Rockloff. Um, but I think, you know, the bigger picture is it points to the need for uh, reform of gambling products themselves. And so we've seen a, a lot of the policy or the great deal of the po our policy and practice around gambling or government and industry policy and practice around gambling, focusing on the 1% of people who have a gambling, serious gambling problem and, and making sure that help services are available for them and the elephant in the room of course is the gambling product itself do we really need poker machines where you can lose twelve hundred dollars an hour um, you know if you play at maximum speed and 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 uh, lines and, and credits so you know there's been a definite reticence um, in policy and practice to look at um, the machines themselves and it's not just poker machines it's you know sports betting race betting casino betting as well so you know it's a bit like um, expecting road safety to improve without having you know many safety standards on cars so getting the political will to make those types of changes is um, showing to be a long time coming shall we say yes it's always hard to touch those products isn't it no one wants to to change anything at all <laughs> all right Matthew Rockloff, Nerily Hing and Matthew Brown, it's been fun exploring the stuff you've all been working on and seeing the diversity of interests and research strengths in the Experimental Gambling Research Lab. Thanks for joining us on CQ Uni Impact. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, guys. Nice work. To find out more about how CQ University is changing lives through real-world research, check out our website in the description. And remember to subscribe to CQ University podcasts so you don't miss an episode.